First Thessalonians four verses one through three. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. We're going to cut it off right there for this week and proceed next week with what follows. But would you join me in prayer one more time? Lord, thank you for the truth of the words that we've been singing this morning. They they have prepared our, our hearts well to receive um, this word from you. And may your spirit be pleased to uh, attend with power the word that is spoken now for your glory and for the good of Christ's fellowship in this moment in our history. So, um, Lord, we believe that's why you've set this side a time, uh, this time aside for us this this week. So, we offer it to you gladly now in Jesus' name. Amen. We, we know, as I mentioned last week, that we've come to a point of transition in our study of First Thessalonians because of the first word in our text. So, if we look down again, the first word is finally, and that just indicates that Paul is somehow reaching some kind of a concluding point in a list of points in this letter, which is characteristically how he uses this word in his letters. Right before he begins to apply what he's taught earlier in his letters, so he uses the word finally to trigger that or to indicate that, but he uses it in coordination with the word then or therefore in order to remind us that the applications that he's about to make are based upon or grounded in the truth that he's just taught. So with the first two words in our text, finally points us forward to what he's about to say, but therefore keeps us tied to what he's already said. Both are important, both are grounding and helpful as we go forward. And if we process this letter as a whole, It has been very heavy so far on rehearsal of events and actions and motives, as in so far, three out of the five chapters of 1 Thessalonians. But but I, I also hope that we've come to understand in the process of walking through the rehearsal that it hasn't been rehearsal of events and actions and motives for the sake of events and actions and motives alone but rather for the sake of teaching and illustrating gospel truth through those events and actions and motives that they're rehearsing. And the the point of that is he's not just rehearsing a story for this church in chapters 1 to 3 for the sake of being sentimental with them. He's rehearsing a story with the greater motive of declaring truth about the person of God and the gospel of Jesus to them. And now the applications that he's about to make to them 
are not based on the experiences of chapters 1 to 3 to the neglect of gospel truth. Rather, they are applications of the very gospel truth that he's been declaring to them or illustrating to them in the experiences that he's been rehearsing to them. And there is a, there, there is a greater point to all of that than just trying to be technical with the text. The greater point is that what Paul is doing in these letters of First and Second Thessalonians is the same from a distance as he's been doing when he was with them face to face. So he's continuing to strive with every resource at his disposal under his current circumstances to make mature followers of Jesus out of the believers in Thessalonica. So his commands to them come after the truth that he declares to them. Or the applications that he gives them flow naturally out of the truth of the gospel that he rehearses to them. And it's just a small reminder to us as moms and and dads and pastors and teachers and disciple makers as all of us are, if we are believers in Jesus, that our investment in others is never to remake them into our image any more than Paul's motive was to remake the Thessalonians into his own image. But only into little Paul's or little you's in as much as Paul or you or I or we embrace and reflect the truth of the gospel of the glory of Jesus Christ. So Jesus is always the goal. Conformity to his image, not yours, not mine, but yours or mine or ours in as much as grace has conformed us to his image so that any of us can with humble boldness say, as Paul at times said, not follow me, but follow me in as much as I, by grace, follow Christ. And what we see in this letter and in in all of Paul's letters, really, where, where application of gospel truth lands for him is not outside of the gospel, nor is it in preferential areas of life where Paul is merely lobbying for one equally valid application of gospel truth over another. His applications concern issues where the gospel itself is at stake. And one of the efforts of ongoing discipleship is to bring believers or a church to a point of maturity so that they know the difference between the two categories. So that our passions and our resources are invested in those areas where the gospel is actually at stake. So that none of us waste our lives lobbying for one equally valid application of the gospel over another. And it just strikes me as, on the one hand, somewhat um, humorous, uh, on the other hand, somewhat ironic... The fact that we are going to spend so much time this summer, as in like three months of course seminars, talking about application issues where the gospel isn't ultimately at stake. Nevertheless, we would argue 
that it is necessary and we do trust that it will be helpful and good so that if your natural question after everything that I've just said is as it should be, then why are we doing it? Our answer would be we're, we're doing it ultimately to, ultimately to accomplish just that. To further our effort to bring Christ's fellowship as a corporate body to maturity so that in these areas where brothers and sisters of ours choose to act as if the gospel is at stake, as a local church, as a body of believers, we must know that it's not. And we must not live as if it is and in the process skew the gospel or blur the image of the glory of Christ that ought to be on display here. So we hope to clarify in the process of those studies that, yes, the gospel is at stake in these areas, but it's not at stake here. And we're going to fight passionately against our natural inclinations to act as if it were at stake in areas where it's not. And we're going to submit joyfully to the Spirit to help us focus on areas where it actually is. So that the display and the reflection of the gospel of the glory of Christ would be clear and radiant and vibrant and bright here. That's what we want. So we we need to know the difference. And, And the passion and the time and the resources that we invest between those two categories should look drastically different. And just as a little bit, a little plug for our course seminars again coming up during the months of May, June, and July, we, we, we have a tentative list of issues to work through. And we've categorized them under three different headings, one heading for each month and various issues under those headings during the Sundays of those months. So May being the home, June being the church, and then July being the world. And and honestly, we have uh, benefited so much from your eyes and your minds seeing and thinking about issues that you're struggling with or working through. So please continue to send us your thoughts. Send us your thoughts. Send us your suggestions of topics that you think would be helpful for Christ Fellowship right now that are under these categories and we, we would still gladly easily replace a less helpful topic with a more helpful one. But let me preview a short list of Paul's applications in these last two chapters, just so you can see what I'm talking about for yourselves, and you can see where we're going in the coming weeks. Here's a short list. Sexual immorality. Brotherly love. Life and death, and life after death. The end of the world. Sobriety. And then just a shotgun list at the end that ultimately concludes with the prayer in chapter 5 and verse 23. Now may the God of peace sanctify you completely, so that everything he says leading up to 
that statement absolutely has to do with our sanctification. And it's like that in every letter of his, even in those areas where Paul might say to a church, such as in Corinth, meat offered to idols, the gospel isn't ultimately at stake here under normal circumstances, but it may be at stake in the community in which you live. And the call, whenever that is the case, is lay aside your liberty right now for the sake of the gospel among those people. So, yes, it is a mark of somebody else's immaturity that you're being called to do so, but it's also a mark of your own maturity in Christ to do so, and it's ultimately for God's glory in their sanctification. The goal of laying aside liberties under certain circumstances is never being okay or indifferent to others continuing indefinitely in their immaturity. So it's, it's not... Ignoring the reality that in their immaturity, they are wrongly treating non-gospel issues as gospel issues. But it is, lay aside your liberties for the moment, because the gospel is bigger than that. And more urgent than that right now, when it calls you as the mature one to sacrifice to see Christ formed and on display in them. You indulge, and your opportunity with them may be over. And you may, in fact, ruin it for others in the future. But you lay it aside, and there may be another conversation, which may lead to another conversation, which may lead to the day when their maturity in Christ will humble them for misplaced passions and redirect them to use those formerly misplaced passions for the display of the glory of Christ in the gospel. But as far as 1 Thessalonians goes, I don't think any of Paul's applications fall under the category of non-gospel, elevating or lobbying merely for one equally valid preference over another. The gospel was at stake in Thessalonica, just like it is at stake here, within this body and in this community. So our attention to the the matter of sanctification is absolutely urgent. Our text this week, as you heard in the reading, actually ends in the middle of verse 3 on purpose. Because the second half of verse 3 begins to get specific concerning where verses 1 through the first half of verse 3 lead us and ultimately leave us. So verse 3, this is the will of God, your sanctification, and everything he says after that until chapter 5 and verse 23 fleshes that out. Chapter 5 and verse 23 then sealing it off on the back end. According to verse 1 of chapter 4, the urgency that I mentioned a moment ago regarding our attention to sanctification was not an understatement. This is precisely how Paul introduces the section. So again, verse 1, finally then, brothers, we ask you and we urge you in the Lord Jesus. The difference between those two being 
Paul and his companions were issuing more than a request for the church to consider whenever time would happen to afford itself. Now, obviously, they did ask with the assumption that the Thessalonians, as true believers in Jesus, would gladly pursue this without Paul's urging. But Paul urged, nevertheless, to reiterate to them the urgency of their attention to their own sanctification. So, what is he so urgent about in his own words? It's the rest of verse 1. Finally then, brothers, we ask you, we urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. And if we were to just momentarily set aside the qualifiers in that verse, just for a moment, What Paul is so urgent about in the Thessalonians abounding more and more was in their walking in a manner that pleases God. When we put the qualifiers back in, in the middle of that verse, the the qualifiers are necessary because they tell us two important things. First, they tell us that Paul was telling them no differently here in this letter than he did in their presence. So that's the just as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God. Second, they clarify to us that Paul's urgency with them was not because of or based on a frustration over their disobedience. It was rather an encouragement in their obedience. Huge difference between the two. He says... Just as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, so you would do so or abound more and more. This is the second time in a few short verses where he's pushed them to abound in an area where they were already flourishing. If you remember last week, it was the prayer, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, even as we do for you. And Paul prayed that even though he had already praised God multiple times already in this letter for preserving labors of love in them despite their sufferings or in their sufferings. And we said last week that the extra push was not Paul's effort to correct something they were doing wrong. It was rather his effort to burst the dam of something they were doing right so that their love might overflow for the good of the church, the unity of this body, the dispelling of the persecutors, the thwarting of the efforts of Satan to divide and conquer this church and for the conversion of those on the outside looking in. As through their ever-abounding Love on display. Jesus in his infinite love, in his atoning death and triumphant resurrection would also simultaneously be on display for the ultimate accomplishing of all those purposes. So we said last week 
that when Paul says in a prayer, God, let us supply what's lacking in their faith. That lacking was not due to negligence or rebellion as much as ignorance or immaturity. So they were loving, but since their love was not yet perfect, because they were not yet glorified, it will never be perfect, and because it wasn't perfect, even though they were loving already, Paul saw by the Spirit an opportunity for them to abound more and more in their love. And Paul was humbly confident that by God's grace, he and Silas and Timothy could serve their abounding. And I would say the same is true here in our text under the broader category of sanctification. Abounding love in chapter 3, falling definitely under the broader category of sanctification, just as much as everything that follows in chapter 4. So in our text, the Thessalonians, having been regenerated by the Spirit, had already begun to respond to Paul's teaching on what it means to walk in a manner that pleases God. And by the Spirit, they had actually begun to walk that way. So that in the moment of this writing, God was presently pleased with their walk. But Paul here so helpfully sees their present obedience as an opportunity to urge for more. So let me say that again. It's, it's important. It's helpful. Paul sees here in their present obedience an opportunity to urge for more. What this and last week should do for us at, at bare minimum is correct for us a misunderstanding that I am uh, admittingly often guilty of. That somehow the greatest opportunities we have individually and corporately are with those who aren't doing well or need to be confronted or called out to repentance and faith and obedience. And, and obviously, certainly, that is a matter of urgency in those situations. And we, we must always be quick to attend to them with the time and energy and resources that are appropriate to the urgency. And I think that we all would be in total agreement with that. But I'm learning here in this study that my, my, view, my view of you all, my view of my family, my kids at any given time can, can never be, oh, he's doing well. Thankfully, I can focus elsewhere. He'll be okay. It can never be that way. This is a continuation of a lesson from last week, but just from a slightly different angle, that as disciple makers, which again, we all are, I think we are to be as motivated and see the same urgency with those who are doing well as we are with those who are struggling for two different reasons. With the latter, we see an opportunity to shift 
the momentum of sin and rebellion towards repentance and faith and obedience as a display of the redemption that Jesus secured for his own. But with the former, we see an opportunity to capitalize on the momentum already created by the Spirit in faith and obedience and urge it forward so that the sanctifying work of the Spirit in Jesus' resurrection is on display and glorified. And I would argue that what Paul is talking about here in this letter at this point is the latter. I think he's talking about capitalizing on spirit-generated, sanctifying momentum, if I can use that word. Capitalizing on spirit-generated, sanctifying momentum and pleading with God and pushing these believers not to rest in their present obedience and faith. Never to rest in their present obedience and faith, but to abound always, abound more and more. And if they ever reach the point to which Paul envisioned them reaching when he wrote this, I'm pretty confident that he would have sat down and written the exact same thing to them all over again. Never rested until their sanctification spilled over into glorification and they were safely home forever. And for the same reason, Christ's fellowship, we can never rest. We can never rest because the salvation of your soul is at stake. And if you're threatened by that statement, What I mean is, while we absolutely value the moment that many of us joyfully reflect on and identify as the one in which we began to believe in Jesus in as much as it is our best effort to identify the moment the Spirit regenerated our dead hearts and opened our blind eyes to see and know and believe in Christ crucified and risen from the dead for our salvation. While we value that, we never want to minimize that. Yet, from that moment on, we value more. and We ought to always value more where you stand right now with Jesus in your obedience to his commands and the current state of your faith in the sufficiency of his atoning work on your behalf. And when faith and obedience are not on display, we urgently and lovingly call you back and pray to God that by his grace and through his spirit you would repent and return and believe And if you will not hear that call or those calls, then we do the most loving and biblical thing for you and for the church and dismiss you from the community of faith and shift our call to you from come back to come to Jesus and be saved. 
but when faith and obedience are on display. Just like when you professed faith in Christ, our urgent plea is always going to be with you. Praise God for that, but don't rest in what you did yesterday so that you coast or become careless to your own destruction today. But rather look afresh today to the sufficiency of Jesus' death and resurrection for you, and based on that, abound more and more in faith and love and obedience to his commands. This is precisely what the indwelling Holy Spirit And his sanctifying work is always seeking to do in every one of us in whom he dwells. Afresh and to greater degrees and displays every day of our lives more and more abounding fruit. Because more and more abounding fruit in your sanctification has everything to do with what he most passionately seeks which is the glory of Jesus on display in the sufficiency of his death and resurrection for the conformity of his people to his image in faith and love and obedience before a watching world for their salvation. So we never cease to urge for your sanctification because he never ceases to seek it. To the person who doubts or questions or is skeptical of their own role in their sanctification, we know that our obedience is included in the Spirit's pursuit of it, not only because of what Paul's already said in his urging us toward it, but also because of what he says next. So finally then, brothers, we ask you, we urge you to abound more and more in walking in a manner that pleases God. And and how do we do that? He says, for you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For some of your translations probably say, for you know what we commanded you or what commands we gave you through the Lord Jesus. Walking and pleasing God being directly tied to our obedience to his commands. Which commands include all of scripture. As Paul certainly included here in his reminder to them of the instructions that he and Silas and Timothy gave them while present with them. All of scripture telling one grand gospel story through types and shadows and fulfillments and applications all for the full salvation of God's people both now and in eternity. So what he's still striving for here is where he ended the last chapter. Those who have been purchased by the Son wrath absorbed, sin atoned for, guilt removed, standing reversed from condemnation to justification, enemy to friend and son or daughter, those standing before him in the final day, in his son, blameless in holiness, 
and that standing not being an evidence of their own works for the earning of their own justification, but an evidence that it has been earned for them already by the only man who never had to earn it for himself because he was also God. And the dramatic transformation of the individuals who stand blameless in holiness before him on the final day, not being some indicator to their own credit. But in that day will clearly be seen to be a work of God. Wrapped up in his free election and predestination of them before the world began and Christ's freely coming to purchase everything necessary to bring their election and predestination to pass in both time and eternity. So justification all the way to glorification. And the Spirit coming to guide and secure the process from beginning to end. So regeneration to full sanctification and glory. And and the word that captures the in-between of your justification and glorification is the word that I've used a number of times already in our text in even just a couple of sentences ago, but one that Paul now actually uses in our text, which is the last sentence of our text. It's the word sanctification. According to Romans 8, nothing in the process of our salvation can be separated from the other, because all of it is a free gift of the triune God, purchased by Jesus, applied by the Spirit for the good of the elect and for the eternal pleasure of God. So let me just read that phenomenal text to us, beginning in verse 28 of Romans 8. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. It is God's pleasure to bring that to pass for you. Stepping back, the formal definition of sanctification is this. It is a progressive work of God and man that makes us more and more free from sin and like Christ in our actual lives. Which is why it is right at one and the same time to say, your sanctification is guaranteed in God's election, predestination. It was purchased by Jesus. It's applied by the Spirit. It's inseparable from your justification. And it spills over when Jesus comes into your glorification. But it is equally as right to urge us by the Spirit to abound more and more in it. And that is precisely what Paul is doing here 
in this letter, in this text, which is why our passage today ends in this declaration, which is the thrust of everything he's said, for this is the will of God. the, The will of God summed up in one statement in all of his commands is your sanctification. And where we end today is where we will begin next week with chapter 4 and verse 3 and chapter 5 and verse 23 serving as the two ends that serve the entire sanctification process from justification to glorification on the one hand it is for this is the will of God your sanctification So we urge you to abound more and more in obedience and faith and love because the rejection of which, if I can quote G.K. Beale, the rejection of which is tantamount to rejecting God. On the other hand, the other end, is chapter 5 and verse 23. Chapter 4, verse 3, it's the will of God, your sanctification, and we urge you to pursue it. On the other end, it's a may God himself do it. May God himself sanctify you completely. Because only God can actually do it. And he's promised to infallibly do it for his own because he loves them and he loves his son. And in love, he will be pleased to present those whom he's sanctified to his son as an adorned bride prepared to serve and reflect his glory for all of eternity. So my hope is this little intro today to the rest of the book produces in us an urgency not to rest in yesterday's professions or today's obediences or evidences to always seek our own and each other's abounding in works of faith and labors of love and joyful obedience but I hope it also might produce in us at the same time a quiet rest and thankfulness toward the God who loved us so thoroughly that he has left no stone unturned in our full salvation that Christ did not purchase in his death and the Spirit will not apply in our lives. And may these two realities together produce in us, in life, every day, a fulfillment of the former with the disposition created by the latter. One of joy and trust and gratitude that will rightly keep on display the full glory of what Jesus Christ accomplished for us.